until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened. If then anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and will show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if, you, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will gather, be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the another. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender, and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near, at the doors. Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words by no means will pass away. But of the hour and day no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In Luke 11:42 through 52 we read these words, very similar to what I just read. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisee, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greeting places, greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves who are not seen, and the men walk over them, and they are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens of one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which were shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who per perished between the altar and the temple, yes, I say to you, 
it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourself, and those who were entering in, you hindered. Notice how all the blood from Abel all the way from the beginning of the uh, Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, Jesus says all their blood would be required on a particular generation. And he was talking to that generation. In Luke uh, chapter 12, verse 49, he says, Jesus says, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother. Then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there, is, there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? It's rather ironic that that generation didn't discern the time. We, living 2,000 years later, um, we read, and we can't discern that time either. We're still just as blind as the Pharisees and the scribes and the hypocrites and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Sicarii of Jesus' day. In Luke 13:33, we read, Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. desolate. And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me till the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, we read, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And finally, we read in Luke 23, chapter, or verses 27 through 31. And a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they would do these in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? In the Greenwood, they crucified the Messiah. In the Drywood, 
just prior to 40 AD we will see what happened to the minds of the Jewish people. Now in order to understand these scriptures in the context of the time in which they were written in and from the point of view of those people to whom these scriptures and these letters from Paul and Peter and so on and so forth were written to, we need to get an, an understanding of the, the powers that be at that time, the political, the religious, and the economic systems that were going on in the Mediterranean basin, the Roman Empire, of which uh, Israel was a, uh, a client king, a client kingdom. It was a separate kingdom, and yet it was uh, completely under the control of Caesar. A book I'm not going to be able to uh, get into a real broad discussion of the political and religious and economic systems that were going on in that period, the first century of, uh, of Christianity or the New Testament. I do recommend highly a book called A Guide to the New Testament World by a gentleman named Albert A. Bell, Jr. Um, I highly recommend you get this book. I'm sure that uh, your local Christian bookstore can probably order it for you. The publisher is Harold Press in Scottsdale, Pennsylvania. It's a great, great book. I've read many, many books about that period of, of uh, church history, the first century. Um, I've got a whole lot of them in my library, and this particular one here, A Guide to the New Testament World, when it comes to uh, explaining the Greco-Roman aspect of this, it's just really superb. If I had one, uh, if there was one weakness in the book, I think it would be the uh, the uh, um, Babylonian and the uh, uh, Semitic influence of that period of time. I think he's kind of a little bit weak on. But when it comes to just laying out the Greco-Roman uh, aspect of this first century. He's really fantastic. I'm going to read uh, some pages of his uh, very brief outline of the Caesars, of the kings of Rome, the emperors of Rome, that reigned at that period of time, um, just to, again, familiarize yourself a little bit with the, the political system that was going on. If you recall, the Bible says that Jesus was born in the fullness of time. Now that expression can mean a lot of things. The fullness of time, uh, in terms of what? In terms of prophecy, or in terms of the fullness of iniquity, or in terms of... Uh, it, it can mean a lot of things. And the fact that uh, that uh, he was born at a place where, where man was beginning to worship man as God, as the, the, the Caesars, as we go through this, uh, will show you. It's not an accident that Jesus was born in the reign of these uh, emperors, it's, it was all part of the fullness of this time that, uh, that needed to come to pass for Jesus to, to come on the scene. I believe um, Jesus fulfilled Daniel's prophecy of coming you know, in the Roman uh, period perfectly. He, he fulfilled it, I believe, to the day. Um, and I, I won't get into that on this particular tape. So anyway, let me get to, to these Caesars and give you a little bit of a history from a guide to the New Testament world, the Caesars that reigned in Jesus' day. The first Roman emperor, Augustus, was the survivor of a long, bloody, and exhausting series of wars that began in 133 B.C. In succession, Marius and Sulla in the 80s B.C., Caesar and Pompey in the 50s B.C., and Octavian and Antony in the 30s BC battled for control of a republic grown into an empire without effective central rule, a republic which had simply failed. The Romans had rejected every suggestion of monarchy since the overthrow of their last king, Tarquin the Proud, in 509 BC. Keep in mind, this is several centuries before uh, the time that we're talking about here a form of government suitable for the small newly independent city-state was not capable of running a great metropolis 
with provinces stretching from France to Egypt, Egypt and completely encircling the Mediterranean Sea. Julius Caesar perceived that Rome needed a king, but certain elements in the Senate were so averse to the idea that they assassinated him in 44 BC when his designs became too obvious. In his will, Caesar adopted his grandnephew Gaius Octavius and named him heir. In Roman fashion, the 18-year-old youth took on his adoptive father's name with the form of his original name added on, becoming G. Julius Augustus Octavianus. Historians call him Octavian when referring to his activities before 27 BC. He first ruled jo jointly with Mark Antony and another general, Lepidus, under an arrangement called the Second Triumvirate. But Antony, urged on by his mistress, the notorious Egyptian queen Cleopatra VII, who had also been Caesar's lover, formed plans for creating his own eastern Mediterranean empire. Octavian could not take action against a fellow Roman official without starting another civil war. Egypt, however, was a client kingdom still technically independent of Rome. So he declared war on Cleopatra and defeated her and Antony in the fall of 31 B.C. at the Battle of Actium. This conflict between Octavian and Antony, Lepidus had no real power, had percussions for the New Testament. One step in Antony's plan for an eastern empire was to secure the throne of Judah for Herod, thus planting a friend in a strategic place. Roman troops under Antony's command helped capture Jerusalem in 37 BC and imposed this outsider on the Jews. His position was that of a client king, dependent upon Rome's favor to retain his throne. When Antony was defeated, Herod did some fancy footwork to shift his allegiance to Octavian. Josephus, in Wars, chapter 1.388, uh, that's where you find the reference in his uh, War of the Jews, records a speech in which Herod lays out most of the blame for the situation on Cleopatra and promises that he will be as loyal to Octavian as he was to Antony. After Antony's defeat had removed his last opponent, Octavian tried for several years to rule under the antiquated republican system. Finally, he imposed his own settlement on the Roman Senate which was so worn out by civil war that it would agree to anything but a king. In 27 BC, the Senate gave Octavian the honorific title Augustus, along with the powers of proconsul, that's the control of the army. In 23 BC, he was given the powers of a tribune, especially the powers to veto the action of any other magistrate. Other minor adjustments in this arrangement were made at this time. These powers gave him absolute control of the state while preserving the fiction of a republican form of government. He was supposedly just the chief man of the Senate, though, though the body declined in importance through the following century. Though we speak of him from that point as emperor, Augustus was never called king or emperor. The only titles he took were princeps, which means chief man or leading citizen, and imperator, or the general of the army. Both titles had existed since the early days of Rome. The Senate, instead of the people, elected the councils or other magistrates, but at least there were elections. Augustus had absolute veto power over the actions of any official, but he tried to let the government run on its own as much as possible. The gradual evolution of the Principate is a testimony to Augustus Caesar's political genius, aided by the fact that he survived several illnesses and lived far longer than anyone, especially his second wife, Livia, could have anticipated. The potentially fatal flaw in the position of Augustus was that, since he was not a king, he could not name a successor. He knew that. To prevent another round of civil war, somebody had to readily step in immediately upon his death, but his only son, his only child was a daughter, Julia, by his first wife. 
His second wife had two sons by a previous marriage, but Augustus at first refused to consider them as successors. He tried to procure a male descendant by marrying his daughter off to succession of husbands, first his nephew, Marcellus, then his commander-in-chief, Agrippa, and finally yielded to Livia's supplications to his stepson, Tiberius. But the man who had shaped the destiny of the Roman world could not achieve this one goal of securing an heir. Marcellus died in 22 B.C. Julia and Agrippa produced, in addition to several daughters, three sons, but two of them died in their teens, and the other was deemed mentally unfit to rule. Historians from that period drop broad hints about Livia possibly dispensing strategic doses of poison to clear the way for her favorite son. It has even been suggested that she eliminated her popular younger son so that Augustus would have no choice about his successor. Preparing someone to assume power remained a problem for this imperial family until the dynasty came to an end with the childless Nehru. The marriage of Augustus' daughter, granddaughter Agrippina to Livia's grandson Germanicus eventually blended the two families into what we call the Julio-Claudian dynasty. The term is usually applied to all the emperors from Tiberius to Nehru. Their family relations can best be understood with the aid of a chart. The machinations of the imperial household have caught the imaginations of several writers. Much of what Suetonius and Tacitus record was retold by Robert Graves in his novels I, Claudius, and Claudius the God. These books were made into a series for the BBC and PBS and influenced the creators of the TV series Dynasty. The family provides a case study in what can go wrong in the accumulation and exercise of absolute power. Late in his reign, Augustus bowed to the inevitable, adopted Tiberius, and began to share power with him, thus making clear to the Senate and the army his choice for a successor. When he died in 14 AD, he concluded the longest reign that any Roman emperor would ever enjoy. Tiberius' first act as emperor was to execute Augustus' surviving grandson, so there could be no rallying point for any opposition. This house-cleaning technique remained standard in imperial successions, even well into the era of the Christian emperors. So the next emperor would be Tiberius, who reigned from 14 AD through 37 AD. Now, the reason why I'm giving this uh, information about these Caesars and a little bit of their background is because their attitude toward Christians and their attitude toward Jews and their attitude toward the the conflict between Christians and Jews had a great deal to do with the writings of the New Testament. Many of the writings were in direct response to the things that were actually going on in the Roman Empire. And the the apostles were writing to churches who were being affected by these decisions of these rulers, kings in Israel, and emperors in Rome, and that's why I'm giving you a background of some of their, uh, of some of these people, and when they ruled, so that you can get an idea of uh, what the Christian was actually facing in those, you know, 30, 40, 50 years that we're talking about here. Okay, so Tiberius, whose image was on the denarius handed to Jesus, Mark 12:16, has been much criticized as a ruler. By all accounts except one, he was a dour, antisocial, stingy, given to sexual perversions, and deeply suspicious of those around him. He believed in astrology and displayed considerable antagonism to Judaism. The minor historian Velaeus Paterculus, who served under Tiberius in the army, has only extravagant, pra- extravagant praise for him. Of course, he was writing while Tiberius was emperor. Tiberius preferred to leave the running of the government to the commander of his bodyguard, the Praetorians. 
Augustus had lived like a typical Roman aristocrat, walking through the streets with only a few slaves or friends to accompany him, running the state much as a senator would run his far-flung business or, or agricultural interests. Tiberius' approach to government was to seclude himself as much as possible from the people he ruled. Finally, he retired to a villa on the Isle of Capri in the Bay of Naples, allegedly passing his time in various sorts of sexual depravity. He did not return to Rome during the last ten years of his reign. Tiberius had little choice of a successor. His own son died in 23. His nephew Claudius had a nervous facial tick, stuttered, limped, and in general was considered unfit to rule. Another nephew, Germanicus, the husband of Augustus' granddaughter Agrippina the Elder, had proved too popular with the people, so Tiberius had him murdered. Much of Germanicus' children had also been executed or exiled. As a possible successor, that left only Germanicus' son, Gaius, known by his nickname Caligula, which means little boots, which his father's soldiers had given him. Suetonius claims that Tiberius chose his grandnephew Caligula to succeed him because he wanted the Romans to look back on his own reign as a golden age, and he suspected what sort of ruler Caligula would become. He chortled that he was, quote, nursing a viper in the bosom of Rome. Now we come to Caligula, who reigned from 37 A.D. to 41 A.D. So here we're talking about the very early stages of the church, uh, Jesus being crucified somewhere between 27 A.D. and 33 A.D., depending on you know, which historian you want to believe. So here we're talking about, you know, almost like the first decade after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And we have a Roman emperor, Caligula. Caligula did not disappoint Tiberius's low expectation of him. He displayed every evidence of a social, sociopathic personality, a person who has no sense whatsoever a right or wrong and simply does what pleases oneself, regardless of the consequences for others. He apparently committed incense with all three of his sisters while still in his teens. Caligula ruled in an erratic and despotic manner, spending in the first year of his reign all the money that the thrifty Tiberius had amassed over 23 years. After eight months in power, he fell ill with a prolonged high fever, which seemed to have left him even more unbalanced than he had been until then. He apparently thought he was the incarnation of Zeus. Various explanations have been offered for the exact nature of his illness. For the rest of his crazed reign, his actions were unpredictable, even sadistic. Wealthy people were often arrested on the slightest charges so their property could be confiscated. He led troops in Gaul on an attack on the sea, ordering the men to stab the waters with their spears and collect seashells as booty for the victim over Neptune, the god of the sea. He named his favorite racehorse a member of the Senate and was about to make the animal a council when he was murdered by a few Praetorians and a handful of senators. At the time of his death, Roman soldiers were on their way to Jerusalem with a statue of the emperor which was to be placed in the temple. Most Roman officials tolerated the Jewish peculiarity about not having images in the city, but Caligula had decided to insist on the divine rights which he felt were his. The commander of the troops was sensitive enough to the situation of the provinces that he delayed enforcing the order hoping that Caligula would change his mind. News of Caligula's death reached the province shortly before a new order from Caligula demanding that the commander be removed and the image put in place. This was one of the incidences which heightened tensions in the area and led ultimately to the outbreak of war in 66 AD. 
So this emperor uh, believed he was God and wanted to be worshipped as God. And as we can see here, he wanted his, uh, his statue put into the, the holy place in, uh, in Jerusalem. Um, so we're getting a little bit of an idea of the, the, uh, the kind of rulership that was coming into force at the height of the Roman Empire. I mean, this was the, the, uh, the beginning of this great uh, power that controlled the entire Mediterranean basin. And these are the kind of emperors that are, that are coming out of this, this powerful political, religious, and economic structure. The next one is Claudius from 41 through 54 AD. Now at this time, Paul is doing much of his evangelizing throughout the, uh, the empire, and he's doing, uh, um, well, he's doing a lot of evangelizing in the Roman Empire in, in this particular decade here. Okay, with Caligula dead, the Senate had visions of restoring the old republic, but the Praetorian guards realized that without an emperor, there would be no need for an imperial bodyguard. So they saluted as imperator Caligula's uncle Claudius, whom they found, found cowering behind a drapery in the palace. The Senate, too long accustomed to acquiesce to the demands of the emperors and the army, granted him the powers and titles enjoyed by his predecessors. As Tacitus observed, the military basis of this benevolent dictator was at last revealed. The secret was out. The army made the emperor. In return, the emperor had to keep the army happy. I think this is a really important point here for maybe things that uh, might be on the horizon down the road. Claudius proved, however, to be a competent administrator. During his reign, the Romans conquered Britain. A systematic civil service was instituted to replace the old practice of having the emperor's slave run the various departments of the government, and certain legal rights were adopted to women in the area of owning and inheriting property. In his biography of Claudius, Suetonius quotes a letter written by Augustus to Livia in which he expresses his surprise that the young Claudius, who appears so confused much of the time, could speak so clearly and logically at other times. Historians speculate about whether Claudius's feigned stupidity, that he feigned stupidity so that he would not appear to be a, a rival for the throne, or whether he was simply slow in maturing. Whatever the case, he surprised everyone else as much as he puzzled Augustus. Claudius' fatal weakness was for beautiful women. His wife, Messalina, soon betrayed him and tried to remove him from the throne and marry another man. Claudius executed her. His next wife was his niece, Agrippina the Younger, Caligula's sister whom he married after forcing the Senate to rewrite the laws on incest to exclude a relationship between uncle and niece. Agrippina's son, by a previous marriage, was adopted by Claudius and became known as Nehru. Agrippina persuaded Claudius to prefer Nehru over his own son, Britannicus, who was several months younger than Nehru, and nominate him as his successor. As soon as Nehru reached 16, the age of manhood in Rome, Agrippina poisoned Claudius to set her son on the throne. Claudius' impact on the New Testament can hardly be overestimated. He put Agrippa I on the throne, once occupied by his grandfather Herod. This was the king who laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. Claudius also banished the Jews from Rome in 49 because of a disturbance over someone named Crestus, according to Suetonius. This was almost certainly the Roman author's misunderstanding of the name Christus, which is the name for Jesus, Christ. That expulsion of the Jews and the Christians whom the Romans could not distinguish from the Jews brought Aquila and Priscilla to Corinth, where they met Paul. 
Now we come to a really crucial period of history in which many things were written, much of the Bible was written at that period of time, and many things happened in that part of, of uh, the world that unfortunately we Christians, because we don't study, and we haven't been taught by pastors to study this period, we have become extremely blind. Okay, Nehru ruled from 54 AD through 68 AD, two years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, Nehru from 54 through 68 AD. Nehru, one of his first acts was to poison Britannicus. He ruled for five years with the advice of his mother and the philosopher Seneca. Ancient historians agree that for this brief period his rule was almost exemplary. But in 59, Nehru tired of Agrippina's interference in political affairs and had her murdered. This is his mother. If the ancient accounts can be trusted, it wasn't easy. Poison wouldn't work because she had been taking antidotes for years. She survived his attempt to drown her in a collapsed boat, collapsible boat. Tiring of subtlety, he finally sent a squadron of soldiers to kill her. Seneca was soon sent into exile. The remaining years of Nehru's reign saw him indulge in lascivious indulge his lascivious bent, urged on by psychophant advisors, and checked by no one. As Suetonius says, quote, gradually Nehru's vices gained the upper hand. He no longer tried to laugh them off, or hide, or deny them. End quote. He offended all Rome by building his hedonistic golden house in the center of the city after the great fire in 64. Most people suspected him of resorting to arson to clear the ground for his building project. He tried to fasten the blame on the Christians, but his persecution of them was so brutal that he alienated the populace of Nehru. I want to interject at this point. Nehru, uh, he was so, I mean, he was sick. And you have to understand that Rome at this time, this, the, the citizenship of Rome was sick. I mean, their greatest highlight, the thing that they thrived for, the, the Roman Empire, was the games in which they mutilated and tore up in the most awful way human beings. I mean, as cruel as you could get, that's how cruel uh, these games became. Nehru and some of his garden parties would take Christians and uh, wrap them in cloth and douse them in oil and tie them up to poles and used them as human torches, human lamps, for, uh, for his garden parties. That's how uh, sick the man came, became. He, uh, this uh, mistress uh, um, that we're going to be talk about, talking about here in a, in a moment here, uh, she became pregnant, and he, uh, I guess in one of his rages, he, uh, he kicked her to death. And one of the historians uh, had an account that, uh, that he was so madly in love with this woman that he kicked to death, he loved her beauty, that he, he saw a man that reminded him of her, and he had him castrated and turned him into his, uh, his lover uh, as a reminder of his female wife that, uh, that he kicked to death. The man was a sick, sick dude. Okay, back to the account here. Nehru's mistress... Papa Eya, Sabina, may have set him against the Christians. Josephus describes how she intervened to have some Jewish priests released from prison. He even call, calls her God-fearing. Now that term God-fearing is a Gentile who, uh, who uh, was very, very close to Jews, that you know, believed basically what, what the Jews believed. Okay, and... Uh, so anyway, similar to what like Cornelius was, he was a God-fearer. That's what this uh, Papea was. And uh, Nehru kicked her to death. Okay, back to the story here. By 68, Nehru had lost the confidence of the legions on several of Rome's frontiers. Commanders in Spain, Germany, and Syria were hailed as imperator by their troops. The Senate declared Nehru an outlaw and he took his own life to escape the painful, de degrading death which his enemies would have inflicted upon him. 
I interject again here, Nehru, uh, toward the end of his life, he had many, many people in the upper government uh, either killed or told them that uh, you know, the honorable thing for them to do was to uh, commit suicide, which many of uh, the leaders in this period of, of Rome's history, when they were on, uh, on, the, on the outside or the bad side of the, of the emperor, the command was, uh, you know, suicide. And most of these people, uh, the way they were conditioned, that's generally what they did. They usually didn't run. They usually uh, killed themselves. Upon Nehru's death, civil war broke out for the first time in a century, with troops loyal to three different generals advancing upon Rome. Galba, Otho, and Vitellius ruled for a few months each during the year 69. This is one year before Jerusalem is destroyed. We had in Rome, the Roman Empire, three separate Roman empires, emperors. Okay, barbarians encouraged by the chaos attacked on the frontiers while Roman troops were fighting each other in Italy. Part of the capital itself was burned, and the Romans feared that, quote, the end of the empire was at hand. We find this quote in Tacitus in his histories, uh, chapter 4, uh, .54. It may have been at this point, and not in 96, as many scholars maintain, that the book of Revelation was written. The heads of the beast in this strange book are clearly the Roman emperors. The fifth head is Nehru, whose suicide occurred away from Rome. There were rumors that he was still alive, even in March of 69, Tacitus History 2.1. This caused great consternation, especially in the east, in the province of Asia, the location of the seven churches addressed in the early chapters of Revelation. Stories about the return of Nehru persisted into the second century. There were actually counterfeit Nehrus, uh, just for your, you know, I'm interjecting here, counterfeit Nehrus who actually pretended to be Nehru reincarnated, and one of them actually had a large army follow him until he was finally uh, caught for being an imposter. Um, by the way, if you're hearing a, a tweeting sound in the background, it's a, uh, a uh, cricket that I can't seem to get rid of. When I record, I record down here in the basement. And uh, this little tricket, tricket, cricket, <laughs> I've been trying to find where he's located, and uh, I've been unsuccessful. Okay, now we come to the Flavians, which ruled from uh, 69 to 96. The victor of the Malay in 69, known as the Year of Four Emperors, was Vespasian, a member of the Flavian family who had worked his way up from lower middle class beginnings to become commander of the legions in Syria. At the time the civil war began, he was trying to suppress a Jewish revolt. The Jews, provoked by a couple of particularly insensitive Roman governors, had taken advantage of Nehru's distraction from politics in the last years of his reign to try to throw off the Roman yoke. They had not counted on the military skill and tenacity of Vespasian and his son Titus. The success of these two generals compelled some Jews to abandon their cause. The most notable among them was Josephus, who surrendered his position in Galilee, took the Flavian family name as part of his own, and became an apologist for the Romans. Leaving Titus in charge of operations in Judea, Vespasian returned to Italy in the fall of 69 to consolidate his power. In 70, Titus destroyed Jerusalem. Three years later, the last contingent of rebels were trapped in the hill fortress of Masada, built by Herod the Great. After an enduring, uh, enduring a prolonged siege, they committed mass suicide on the night before the Romans finally breached the walls. I believe, uh, just to let you know, that was on a Passover evening, the end of this seven-year onslaught to uh, Judea. Vespasian ruled for ten years, restoring the army's confidence in the government, destroying Nehru's golden house, and beginning work on the amphitheater known as the Colosseum. His son Titus succeeded him through, uh, from 79 through 81, 
only long enough to preside over another fire in Rome, an epidemic, and the eruption of Vesuvius, which destroyed Pompeii. He seemed to have respected Judaism and to have been reluctant to destroy the temple. His mistress was Bernice, the sister of Agrippa II. Agrippa II was one of the, uh, the kings of, uh, of pieces of Israel. Vaspasian's younger son, Domitian, who may have murdered Titus, was emperor almost until the end of the century, from 89, 81 AD through 96 AD and may not have been as bad a ruler as the next generation made him out to be. His accomplishments paled behind those of his father, and he seemed to have had an autocratic temper. Toward the end of his reign, he became increasingly paranoid and arrested large numbers of senators and other members of the aristocracy whom he expected of plotting against him. During this purge, he may have come across some Christians and begun a persecution in the church in Rome but it does not seem to have spread to other parts of the empire. His opinion of Judaism was also, it seems, to have been unfavorable. Now, before we leave the uh, Roman emperors, I want to read to you a letter of a governor, a Roman governor, to the emperor Trajan in the year 112 in a uh, area uh, that today would be called north-central Turkey. Turkey. At that time, it was uh, a province called Bithynia. This particular um, governor, Pliny, had a problem. He was appointed a governor in an area that he was unfamiliar with, and he was unfamiliar with um, handling and dealing with cases of Christians being caught in the act of being Christians. And he wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan, told him how he was handling it, and asked the emperor to respond to him, to, to tell him if he was doing it right or not. The reason why I want to read this letter is to give you an idea uh, that you might be able to grasp the difficulty with which Christianity, as a brand new religion, uh, the difficulty that it had in getting established, and how God used the, the, the religion of Judaism in a perfect, perfect way to bring about this new nation, this new man, in a place where it wouldn't be persecuted for a while, and that when the persecution, in fact, did come, it didn't uh, snuff out the new religion, Christianity, but it actually uh, added the air to, to make the flames scatter throughout the empire. It was a perfect plan by God. And as we begin to take a look at these scriptures and look at that period of time from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. and see God's wisdom in how he, he brought about the church will just uh, really enjoy reading the New Testament in, in new ways in the days ahead and seeing God's sovereignty and, and God's wisdom uh, in, in, I think, a new light. Anyway, uh, here's the letter from Pliny, a governor in a province called Bithynia, to the emperor Trajan. And I quote, it is my custom to refer all my difficulties to you, sir, for no one is better able to solve my doubts and to inform my ignorance. I have never been present at an examination of Christians. Consequently, I do not know the nature or extent of the punishments usually meted out to them, nor the grounds for starting an investigation or how far it should be pressed. Nor am I at all sure any distinction should be made between them on the grounds of age, or if young people and adults should be treated alike, whether a pardon ought to be granted to anyone retracting his beliefs, or if he has once professed Christianity, he shall gain nothing by renouncing it, and whether it is the mere name of Christian which is punishable, even if innocent of crime, or rather the crimes associated with the, the name. For the moment, this is the line I have taken with all persons brought before me on the charge of being Christians. I have asked them in person if they are Christians, and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time, with a warning of punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution, for whatever the nature of their admission, I am convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. There have been others similarly fanatic, fanatical who are Roman citizens, 
I have entered them on the list of persons to be sent to Rome for trial. Now that I have begun to deal with this problem, as so often happens, the charges are becoming more widespread and increasing in variety. An anonymous pamphlet has been circulated which contains the name of a number of accused persons. Among these I consider that I should dismiss anyone who denies that they were or ever have been Christians when they had repeated after me a formula of invocation to the gods and had made offers of wine and incense to your statue, which I had ordered to be brought into court for this purpose along with the images of the gods and furthermore had reviled the name of Christ, none of which I understand any, any genuine Christian can be induced to do. Others, whose names were given to me by an informer, first admitted the charge and then denied it. They said they had ceased to be Christians two or three years previously, and some of them even twenty years ago. They all did reverence your, to your statue and the images of the gods in the same way as the others, and reviled the name of Christ. They also declared that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately among themselves in honor of Christ as if to a god, and also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft robbery and adultery, to commit no breach of trust, and not to deny a deposit when called upon to restore it. After this ceremony it had been their custom to disperse and reassemble later to take food in an ordinary harmless kind, that they had in fact given up this practice since my edict issued on your instructions which banned all political societies. This made me decide it was all the more necessary to extract the truth by torture for, from two slave women whom they called deaconesses. I found nothing of a degenerate sort of cult carried to extravagant lengths. I have therefore postponed any further examination and hastened to consult you. The question seems to me to be worthy of your consideration, especially in view of the number of persons endangered for a great many individuals of every class and age, both men and women, are being brought to trial, and this is likely to continue. It is not only the towns, but villages and rural districts, too, which are infected through contact with this wretched cult. I think, though, it is still possible for it to be checked and directed to better ends, for there is no doubt that people have begun to throng the temples, which had been almost entirely deserted for a long time. The sacred rites which had been allowed to lapse are being performed again, and flesh of sacrificial victims is on sale everywhere, though up till recently scarcely anyone could be found to buy it. It is easy to infer from this that a great many people could be reformed if they were given an opportunity to repent. Now Trajan, the emperor's reply to Pliny, is as follows. You have followed the right course of procedure, my dear Pliny. In your examination of the cases of persons charged with being Christians, for it is impossible to lay down a general rule to a fixed formula. These people must not be hunted out if they are brought before you and the charge against you is proved. They must be punished, but in the case of anyone who denies that he is a Christian and makes it clear that he is not by offering prayers to our gods, he is to be pardoned as a result of his repentance however suspect his past, past conduct may be. But pamphlets circulated anonymously must play no part in your accusation. They create the worst sort of precedent and are quite out of keeping with the spirit of our age. Now, according to uh, Albert Bell in A Guide to the New Testament World, he points out that one of the problems that Christians had is the kind of meetings that they were conducting. Rome, Rome had some very serious uh, laws about uh, public gatherings of any sort, and on page 115 of his book he, he points out, I quote, Pliny's eyes must have widened when he heard that the Christians met before it was light and took some sort of oath. This was the heart of the new faith's problems with the government, because the Romans strictly regulated the activities of all sorts of groups or associations known as collegia, Roman officials seem to have been deeply suspicious of any group meetings. 
the earliest collection of Roman laws, the 12 tablets uh, in around 450 BC is when they were written, prohibits groups from meeting at night and allows them to make rules governing themselves only so long as these do not promote public disorder. The Roman government's attitude toward group meetings is summed up by one of the speakers in Levi's account of the persecution of the cult of Dion, Dionysus, Dionysus. Quote, Your ancestors did not wish that even citizens should assemble fortuitously without good reason, and they held that whenever a crowd collected, there should also be an authorized person in control of the crowd. What kind of gatherings do you suppose these to be? Gatherings in the first place held at night, and secondly, gatherings where men and women meet promiscuously. End quote. The Christians would have been guilty of the same crimes. This suspicion of the motives of people who wanted to congregate continued into imperial times. After a major fire in one of the towns in his province, Pliny suggested to Trajan that the townspeople be allowed to start a fire brigade to lessen the danger of another disaster. The number of people involved would be kept small, he promised, and he, quote, I will see that no man shall be admitted who is not genuinely a fireman, and that the privileges granted shall not be abused, end quote. Trajan's reaction was emphatically negative, quote, we must remember that it is societies like this which have been responsible for the political disturbances in your province, particularly in its towns. If people assemble for a common purpose, whatever name we give them, and for whatever reason, they soon turn into a political club. End quote. In another case, the emperor reluctantly allowed the formation of a charitable society, provided, quote, the contributions are not used for riotous and unlawful assemblies, but to re relieve cases of hardship among the poor, end quote. So one of the problems that this new cult, this new religion had was they met at night, unlawful, and uh they weren't a part of a, an established, organized religion. And this is where the fact that Christianity at the beginning came out of a very, very organized and very, very established and very, very accepted religion, the Jewish religion. It was actually the institution of Judaism that preserved and protected the Christian faith from 30 to 78 AD for the most period of that time until it could grow and be strong enough to withstand uh, the tremendous persecution that would come about in the decades to come. But, you know, I just want to make it really clear that had Christianity begun immediately, apart from Judaism, it would have been snuffed out before it ever really got started. And it was the wisdom of God to preserve Judaism from the ascension of Christ to 70 A.D., an entire generation, to preserve it, to keep the law, to keep the temple, to keep Israel, to keep the Levitical sacrificial system and whatnot, and to allow the early church to actually be a part of, remember, Peter and the, and the apostles and James, they stayed in Jerusalem, they went to the temple, they still offered the sacrifices, and they, with some hesitation, uh, alleviated a lot of those um, do's and don'ts to the Gentiles. But later on, uh, as we got closer and closer to the 60s and the 70s AD, the church in Jerusalem, I believe, wanted to put the yoke of the law completely back on all believers. And thank God that uh, Paul, through this whole period of time, kept strong in his, uh, in his faith, by grace through faith are you saved. It's no longer of the works of the law. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? These were letters that Paul was writing at the time when the, the Jewish church was becoming more and more and more, just like a tiny little division, a little splinter, a little group such as the Essenes or the Sicarii or uh, the Pharisees of Judaism, just a little branch of, uh, of Judaism. It was Paul's letters written at this time, just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, that laid the ground for 
the true faith, the true gospel, the gospel of the uh, of the nations, the gospel of the circ- of the uncircumcision, this gospel would be vindicated and released from its bondage to Judaism, but not until the church was strong enough and large enough to to be able to uh, withstand the pressures of Rome on its own after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, for those of you who are really studying uh, and have decided that you're going to go through this tape series more than once, and you're going to really try to grab a hold of this and really get it to the place where you can possibly teach this to other people, because that's really the, the whole purpose of why I'm doing this tape is hopefully for some other people to grab a hold of this and to be able to grab a hold of it well enough to teach it. So get your pens out and get a piece of paper out. And I want to go through these 40 years here, these crucial 40 years, and bring out some of the things that occurred in them that we find in our Gospels and we find in some of our our letters in the New Testament. Now, the dates that I have here, I want you to know 